Let me ask you a question. Do any, does anybody in here take naps? Take naps? It's about half of y'all take naps. That's interesting. I personally, I like a good Sunday afternoon nap, right? I do. I do. I will probably take one today. Not every Sunday, but I'd say eight out of ten. I'll take a Sunday afternoon. And I don't mean like I'm going to go sit on the chair and fall asleep watching golf and wake up in 20 minutes. I mean, I go get in the bed and sleep for like an hour, right? Wake up, regret it. Oh, man, this, this is bad, right? And when Lisa and I first got married, she didn't even know what a nap was. And so I had to teach her how to take a nap. Probably would have been better off if I just left you alone, right? Um, but do you ever think about how much time humans spend resting or at least attempting to rest? A third of our life we're asleep. And that's for those of y'all that don't take naps, right? As you get older, that seems to get less and less. Um, that's where I am now. That's where I'm living now. That's probably why I nap because I don't sleep at night. But in certain cultures, naps are even factored into the day of the culture of the day. Greece, Italy, the Philippines, Nigeria, they have specific words for an afternoon nap in their language, and their culture. In fact, I read this week, blew my mind. In China, taking a nap right after lunch is almost considered a constitutional right. I, I was totally unaware of that. Found that out this week. And you know, and, and now, even in, in businesses, especially the tech industry, they're starting to realize that this, this nap thing is helpful because they, like Google and Zappos, they have these napping pods that look like eggs. And there's these, you know, you can sit in these eggs and they've got like white noise in them. And you can take a, a nap in the middle of the day, probably because they want you to work 16, 17 hours a, week, a day. But um, yeah, they're, they're learning that it helps with production. I mean, we work hard at resting, <laughs> right? I mean, we spend money on vacations, trying to get away from the craziness of life, even if only for a few days. And then if you're like me, as soon as you're headed back home, you've got a million things, you're stressed out because you, you think of the million things you, get, you have to get done because you took a few days off, right? And then, but as hard as we work at resting, we're not good at it. Americans are number two worst country in the world at resting. Japan's number one, right? Does that surprise anyone? No. I mean, and I mean, hard work, long hours, it's ingrained in the culture of, of who we are as, as, uh, as a Western bootstrap, you know, individual autonomy, do it on my own. That's, that's us, right? No, no time for naps in the middle of the day. There's work to be done. Napping people are lazy people. I mean, I, I get that, right? I've been accused of that before. So. But that's all about physical rest. There's a lot of conversation right now about mental and emotional health. And, and, and what does that look like, even resting? And what are some of the spiritual? What about spiritual rest, emotional rest? We're stressed out people. And we keep doing things that seem to make it worse, not better. Stress has become a public health crisis. And we know that a lot of addictions are tied to escapism. There's a lot of addicts. Most addicts and alcoholics turn to substance abuse as a way to escape reality. They abuse these mood-altering substances as a way to find relief from the problems of their daily lives. And whether it's related to work or relationships or self-image or financial problems. And we see the ultimate attempt and failure at rest in the fact that 
in the last 20 years, the suicide rate's risen 30, 30%. 30%. That's an unbelievable number. Because that hits a little closer to home to each of us every day. And, and although we pretend to look back at the good old days when life was easier and when things were less stressful, we didn't have all this jobs and technology and everybody hung out on the front porch and you know, ate pot roast and rested at the end of the day. And oh, the good old days, right? Man, they, they weren't. They weren't. In fact, you know how I know that? You know how I know that? Psalm 23 is thousands of years old. And one of the key themes of this little short poem is rest. And we're going to use our Bibles today, so if you, if you have one with you, pull it out. If you don't have one, download the ESV app. I'm going to be using the ESV, English Standard Version, if you want to download an app real quick. Um, that's easier than having me chase, somebody chase a Bible down. But I want us to look together at Psalm 23 and how the Good Shepherd gives us rest. So let's read. We're going to read the Psalm 23rd Psalm together, like we did last week, but this week we're going to read it out of the New Living Translation. And Maddie, it's on there, so help me scroll through there, and then I'm going to take control. So let's read this together. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. It's interesting, y'all had to read that, right? You had the one last week pretty much memorized. And this one, you're like, well, I've got to read. But today, we're going to spend our time, we're going to focus on verses 2 and 3 to discover just what it means to rest in the Lord. How can we rest in the Lord? And that true rest is actually only found in Jesus Christ. The first thing we'll notice in this passage is that people long for rest, this, this is a desire that's ingrained in us. This desire for rest is part of who we are as fallen image bearers of God, the Imago Dei. We're created in the image of God. We're fallen. And this fall created an ingrained desire, a longing for rest. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, they sinned against God, and in their disobedience, we see the consequences of this sin in Genesis chapter 3. We see the punishments that God placed on Eve and then placed on Adam. To Eve, the punishment was basically this. God said, the source of your joy as a woman, the very thing that sets you apart, that sets you above all of the rest of creation, and that's the ability to bear other image bearers of God, that's now going to bring you pain. And then to Adam, he said, I, I placed you in the garden and told you to tend the garden and that your joy was going to come from tending this garden and watching over it and keeping it. Your calling, the very job you were given to work and tend this garden will now bring you pain. 
In fact, we see this in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there, but it says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken from dust, until dust you will return. And we see the physical and emotional distress that's caused by the punishment that God places on all humanity because of Adam and Eve's sin. But we see the spiritual pain brought as well because we see the damaged relationship that happened between humanity and God when they were removed from the garden, kicked out of the garden. You have to remember, Genesis tells us that Adam and Eve walked with God every day in the cool of the evening and no more. Absolutely, that's done. They're they're no longer in the garden. And now the rest of us, we move through life And we have this sense where we no longer feel at home, always searching, always this deep, quiet nagging, this feeling that something isn't quite right, like we don't quite belong, and we attempt to fill it with work or more stuff or more friends. And the thing we're supposed to take joy in, the aspects of life that at creation were supposed to bring us peace and they were supposed to bring us joy, they've been upended. And instead, they bring chaos, and they bring stress, and they bring fatigue, and it creates in us this longing for rest. And and, in Psalm 23, David sees this, and he writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. And then he goes on to list what it is he doesn't lack. And he could have listed a hundred things, thousands of things. He could have listed gold and silver and precious stones and land and houses and friends and family and those types of things. But what does David list in this list of provision? When he lists the greatest thing the shepherds provides, they're all related to rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. And, I'll, and, I, and I get it. Look, in 2019, California, we're going to have a difficult time really connecting with being led to lie down in green pastures, right? You know, I mean, the best we get is like a park, and it's probably wet because they overwatered it, and, or somebody let their dogs out there, didn't clean up after them. But green pastures are, ex- are extremely significant in the context with David's talking about with the shepherd. We of- often forget, because we have irrigation and parks and all that stuff out here, we live in a desert. I mean, y'all know we live in a desert, but we, we do a pretty good job of hiding the fact that we live in a desert. But we live in a desert. If you ditched all the irrigation around here, what would it look like? It would look terrible, right? My favorite time of year is like March, April, when the hills are green. I'm like, oh, it could look like this all the time. But obviously, this, this area of the world that David lived in looked a lot like non-irrigation California. Honestly, I mean, if you took a picture of, of this part of, of Israel where David was at the time and took a picture of like the drive between here and Blythe, you know, about, about 60 miles before you get to Blythe, just turn and take a photo, they pretty much look the same. And if I told you, all right, we're standing on the 10, all right, about... 60 miles from Blythe, and I say, go out there and find me a green pasture. Are you going? I'm not going. I wouldn't know where to go. Green pasture, out there, there's, there's, they don't exist. 
But David says in the midst of that kind of desert, the good shepherd knows, he knows where the best, greenest grass is, and he leads his sheep there to feed. And the reason for this lying down, I thought this was so interesting when I read it this week, when I got to looking at it. Why lie down? All right? I mean, are they so full they're lying down? What's the deal with the lying down? This is what happens in the lying down in Psalm 23 with these sheep. This lying down is not just because they're full. It's because there's enough grass here for the next meal and the next meal and the one after that. So they rest here ready to lie down and eat again because that's the kind of pasture that the shepherd has led the sheep to. And there's no need to move on. There's no need to, to, to keep going and keep looking because the sheep lie down because they're free from fear and tension and aggravation. They're free from hunger. And because of that, they trust the shepherd. They trust his protection and his provision. And, and they're able to lie down and it brings rest. And then it says the good shepherd, he leads the sheep by waters of restfulness where they can drink their fill. And not just drink, where they can bathe. And wash off the dirt and the grime of the journey of getting through the desert to the, the green pastures where they can clean themselves and be bandaged from all the wounds suffered on the long journey to these pastures. And it's in this rest that their restoration is brought. There's revival. And in the rest of this provision, he restores a life and leads us, not sends us, but leads us in the right paths. All we have to do is follow the shepherd. He leads us in the places we need to go. The good shepherd also promises spiritual rest to his sheep. Now we could look at a lot of passages concerning this issue of, of the promise of rest, but I want us to look at Hebrews chapter 4. You can turn there. I'm going to have it on the overhead if you don't want to turn. But in Hebrews 4, chapter 9, we, 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 there's a... So much of Hebrews is tied to Old Testament analogy. But in this particular part of Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, in this passage in Hebrews, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of an issue for us. There seems to be an implied condition presented in the passage concerning rest. We have to work in obedience in order to rest, is what we would think if we just you know, casually read through this. We, we have to respond in faith, but exactly what does this response look like? But the interesting thing is, is we make this harder, this Hebrews passage harder than it needs to be. Because according to verse 10, we respond in faith by giving up. Now, that's the struggle. That's our call to obedience, to give up. Which sounds crazy. It sounds backwards. We, we, what this teaches is that we're our own worst enemy. When it comes to resting in the promises of God, we are our biggest problem. Because what we are actually resting from is ourselves. We're resting from our own works. 
That's what the Hebrews passage is teaching. Our, our spiritual frustration, this, this spiritual exhaustion comes from our constant reliance on our own works as the way to maintain a relationship with the shepherd. Trying to force our way into God's flock by being good enough or worthy enough or by attempting to work our way in, even after we're saved, we still somehow keep hanging on to works as if that's going to help in this relationship. We just hold on to them. I mean, we, we, we get up one morning and we're doing really good, right? We had a good day the day before. We feel good. We feel spiritual. We're like, God, look at my wool. It is so clean. Oh, wait, wait just a second. I got a little sand on it. Hang on. Let me wipe that off. Now, now look at my, oh, man. What? Let me get a Tide stick, God. I'll be right back. I'm going to get a little of this off. I got it off this time. Uh, you know, hang on. Now, now you can look. Uh, wait, don't look. And it's this constant back and forth. And, and this happens in all sorts of ways. For the unbeliever, we see this happen in, in, in various religions, like giving up coffee, right, of all things, hot, no hot beverages, whatever that, okay, whatever, however that's going to help your relationship with God, I, I don't have any idea. Or things that even seem noble if you're in religion where you carry a mat around with you and pray towards Mecca five times a day, which we think is kind of crazy, but how many of y'all pray five times a day intentionally, willing to carry a mat around to pray? always know where east is, right? But it's just a work. We even see it in people's everyday attempts just, just to be good people. I just want to be good people. I just want to earn enough points on my point total to get into the good place, whatever that is. I'm not 100% sure what it is, but there's a good place up there, and I, and I just want enough points to get to the good place, not the bad place. If people, if people do go to the bad place. But they're exhausted. There's no rest. There's no hope. You will never be good enough on your own. It's an impossibility because Scripture teaches us that we're spiritual dead. Spiritually, we're dead. And our attempts at righteousness are worth no more than the rags used to clean the sores of those with leprosy. And that's when that filthy rag, when it says our righteousness is filthy rags, that's what it's describing. And we try and we present ourselves to God as good, clean sheep. But God looks at us and sees us as the muddy mess we are. God has promised rest to his sheep. But spiritual rest comes when we stop relying on our own works for salvation. Like, like God, after he was done, he rested from his work. He said, no, this is good. I'm done. I'm done. Perfect. And we rely, too, just like God rested on creation. We rely on the finished work of Calvary. Christ said it on the cross. It is finished. It is done. And that's where our rest comes, this finished work of Christ and what he did on the cross. That's why we find our rest. Because rest Spiritual rest is based on grace and grace alone. It is not based on our ability. And I love verses two and three. It says, he makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us. 
beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. God is doing the work here. This is the shepherd doing the work. And when life kicks you in the teeth, and when you find yourself wandering through this desert, hoping not even for a green pasture, you're just hoping for a scrub of shade to get out of the sun. It's God himself who takes the responsibility for leading us and guiding us and directing us. And in the difficult times, our endurance is based not on our ability, because if it was, we'd be destroyed. But his provision is not based on our ability. It's based only on his grace. And know that the Lord has taken responsibility for refreshing and restoring your soul. And that happens by grace. And unfortunately for rest, the wicked will never find rest. Psalm 1 talks about the righteous person. is like a tree planted by the water, and it bears fruit, and it prospers, and it, it doesn't wither in drought. But the wicked, the wicked are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. They're the, they're the husks, the weeds that come out of the, of the wheat and it, the wind just blows it away. It says, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteousness. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked, they won't find rest in this life, and they won't find rest in the life to come. And most people would say, of course they don't find rest. I mean, wicked people are not going to find rest. The Hitlers and the Osama bin Ladens of this world, they shouldn't find rest now or in the afterlife. But the reality is, is we don't get to, we're not the judge. We don't get to judge who's good and who's not. I mean, we can make some judgments. Do I think Hitler's worse than my daughter Maddie? I do. <laughs> I do. Right? But as far as eternity is concerned, I'm not the judge of eternity. And whether a person is wicked or not is judged by their relationship with Christ. That's what this issue is. This is a black and white issue. You're either a follower of Christ or you're not a follower of Christ. And we know the goal is for everyone to become a follower of Christ. I mean, that's the goal. That's, that's the, the call, the great commission. Just tell everybody about Jesus and let God work out the details. But whether a person is wicked or not is judged by the relationship with Christ. Anyone who has not repented and followed Christ is viewed from God's perspective as wicked. And those who don't know Christ will never find rest because without the shepherd, they can't even find green pastures. They're blind. They're spiritually blind, spiritually dead. They don't even know where water is. And the wicked, they wander around lost and they spend their lives looking for something that's never going to come to them if the Spirit of God doesn't awaken them, open their eyes to who they are. The lost man doesn't even recognize good things when he sees it. And God does good and honorable things for his children, and he shows goodness and kindness. And according to Psalm 115, the wicked man looks at this goodness of God, and it makes him angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away, and the desire of the wicked, according to Psalm 115, the desire of the wicked will perish. Because the wicked doesn't need a shepherd. Not according to them. 
I don't need a shepherd to lead me. I don't need someone to guide me. I'll follow my own path. And as we learn in Proverbs, Proverbs teaches that that attitude is the way of folly. It's the way of sin. The wicked dismisses the humble submission to the good shepherd that's taught in Psalm 23. And he trusts in himself and he writes his own psalm. And it sounds like this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. One of the most famous poems out there. And you know what God said to that? He said, since you neglected my counsel and you didn't accept my correction, since you thought you knew the, the better way, you, you, you thought you had it figured out, there's going to be a day when it's too late and when that happens, I'm going to laugh at your calamity. I'm going to mock when the terror strikes you. When your terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, and when trouble and stress overcome you, it's too late. The wicked will never find rest because they don't know where to look and they can't see good things when they come. They put their hope and their ambition and their attempts at joy and attempts at happiness in all the wrong places. And the reality is, as David teaches us, that spiritual rest is only found in God. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I have grown over the years, over the last several years, to really, really appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this part of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, Solomon is working his way through his list of vanities. They're called they're his list of futilities. Useless pursuits and attitudes that no matter how valuable they may seem on the surface, they're actually worthless. And in chapter 2, he brings up the concept of toil and rest. And how we humans strive through toil and through hard work, trying to find peace and rest, but ultimately it's worthless. So read with me in verse 18. Solomon writes, and he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. And here's why. Look at it. Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. And yet he will be master of all of it, for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. Solomon says, all the stuff I put so much energy into, even, it's not even mine. Sol Solomon says, I'll die, and some guy who might end up being a fool is going to take this, and all of my work, and all of my wisdom that I put into this, he's just going to take it. He may waste it. He may do something good with it. I don't have any idea. I'll be gone. And then in verse 22, he says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not find rest. This is also vanity. So what do people get in this life from their hard work? They get nothing. Just They get more work. Even at night, their minds can't rest from the work of the day. Now, this is depressing, right? I mean, if I told you more work means you get more work. And, and we do that at work. We work towards a promotion, right? Knowing we're going to get more work. It's a good thing. We want a promotion because it usually mean, usually used to mean, I don't know so much anymore, it used to mean more money. Talked to a lot of people recently have gotten a promotion and more money didn't come with it. I'm like, okay, 
you know, I'm not working in your field, but if you say so. I mean, but Solomon, the interesting thing about Solomon is, is, yeah, he does come across at times as depressing, but he always comes back around to the same answer. Look in verse 24. I love this. It says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, there's a whole sermon in here about the good things of, of pleasurable things, but that's not where we're... I might teach the Ephesians one day, I mean Ecclesiastes one day, and we'll deal with that then. But Solomon realizes this. He realizes that enjoying the fruit of his work now, while he can, is a blessing from God. Because if he's taking joy in his work, that joy only comes from God. Verse 26, he says, For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This is also vanity and striving at wind. You ever tried to catch the wind? I'm doing it right now. Solomon, the man who had every pleasure anyone could want, realizes that all joy, even the little things, even the things we take little pleasures in come from God, but only if we acknowledge him as the provider, as our savior. If not, it's just grasping at wind. It's going to be taken away and given to somebody else anyway. And as we look back at Psalm 23, we realize something immediately. The sheep submit to the shepherd for this reason. Because it's the shepherd that knows where to find rest, where to find quiet waters, where to find green pastures, where to have their soul restored. The sheep don't know. And in this, this psalm, this is the sheep writing about the shepherd. This is the sheep's perspective. It says, the shepherd makes the sheep lie down in green pastures. The shepherd leads the sheep to waters of rest. The shepherd restores the soul of the sheep. The shepherd leads the sheep on the right paths. And the sheep are not left to their own devices, but are led by God himself down the right paths. The one that gets the sheep where the sheep needs to go, even when the sheep doesn't know where they're going. It's all God. It's not us. Spiritual rest is only found in God. And when we submit ourselves to the shepherd, we can be like Spurgeon who wrote that when the soul grows sorrowful, the shepherd revives it. And when it's sinful, he sanctifies it. When it's weak, he strengthens it. He does it. His ministers couldn't do it if he did not. His word would not avail by itself. He restores my soul. Are any of us low in grace? Do we feel that our spirituality is lowest ebb? He who turns the ebb into flood can soon restore our soul. And I read it for our scripture reading this morning in Psalm 55, but David is distressed in Psalm 55. He's been betrayed by a friend, a close friend. And he longs for peace and rest from the battle that's been created by this 
betrayal this close friend. It's, this battle's raging in his life. And in verse 4 of Psalm 55, we see this torment. Just, just listen. David says, My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. And I say, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, and I would fly away and be at rest. Yes, I would wander far away, and I would lodge in the wilderness. I would hurry to find shelter from the raging wind and tempest. If I could fly away and hide, if I could go in the wilderness where there's nobody and just hide out, find me a cabin somewhere in the woods and just hide, Hope, hoping this thing blows over. This is a man in despair. This is a king who has found himself so desperate that he just prays for the ability to fly away from the problems that have come on him. I just want it to go away. And I've been there. Have you been there? God, just make this go away. And it didn't go away. He said, no, I'm going to lead you through it. There's a green pasture out there. And we got to get through the desert to get there. But all I need you to do is follow me. And I promise, when we get there, it'll be worth it. And David found that because he continues pouring out his heart to God. And we see a sudden shift when he says, Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be forsaken. And we see the good shepherd, Jesus, makes the same statement in Matthew 11. And we all, probably most of us could quote this as, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and what? I will give you rest. Jesus calls the weary to rest. The same rest that David is writing about in Psalm 23 comes through Jesus Christ. And this call is for everyone in need. But you have to realize you have a need. You have to recognize your need of the shepherd. And you have to offer. Uh, this offer of rest comes for everyone who is humble and repentant and will turn to Jesus Christ and say, lead me, good shepherd. And you'll find rest if you follow the call of God, the good shepherd. And this morning, I, I don't know where you are in your sp spiritual journey. I always make the assumption that in every audience, no matter who's in the room, that there's somebody in there that needs to hear the call of the Good Shepherd, the gospel. And I don't, I don't know what God may be doing in your life this morning. I, I don't know what desert you may be in. But I can tell you that it's Jesus, the good shepherd, that will bring you rest. Even in the desert, if we're following God, we'll find peace and comfort in the midst of what we're going through, knowing he's taking us to green pastures, quiet waters, 
that his promise is he's going to restore our souls. And so, uh, worship team, y'all go ahead and come on up. And this morning, we're going to, um, we're just going to take a few minutes. And there's multiple things you could do with this sermon. One, you could thank God for leading you through the deserts he's led you through. All right? I've been through some, and probably before too long, we'll be in another one. (laughs) Seems to be the way it goes in just life. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your good shepherd, I'm telling you today is the day of salvation. If you need that, you can come. Brent, won't you come this morning? And I'm going to ask Brent to come. And um, if you need prayer this morning, I'm going to go stand over here and, and uh, while we sing this song. But let's stand together and sing and just reflect on this message this morning.